Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures to the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to join us live for a session sometime, you can join our weekly Control the Room Facilitation Lab. It's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators. Sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab. If you'd like to learn more about my book, Magical Meetings, you can download the Magical Meetings Quick Start Guide, a free PDF reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book. Download a copy today at magicalmeetings.com. Today, I'm with Rob Evans at Imaginal Labs, where he leads large, complex solution design sessions called Design Shops and trains others around the world on how to do that as well. He's also the author of the Collaboration Code series, three core text reference books, and so far, three annual casebooks where top practitioners around the world contribute examples of their best work. Welcome to the show, Rob. <laughs> Douglas, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So great to have you. Let's get our start, as usual, by hearing a little bit about how you got your start. How do you get into this work of running design shops? Man, oh man. Um, well, it goes back to when I was in grad school, in divinity school, of all things, at Harvard, and I was doing a lot of work in prisons and then drug programs. And a uh, full-time student, I had a full-time job running a drug and alcohol detox program in a local hospital where I saw something that I couldn't not see. Uh, I saw one of my best buddies get in such trouble with drugs working in another part of that program that um, one thing led to another, he ended up in a coma for the rest of his life. That led me to the conclusion that how you manage a place really matters. The environment you create for humans to work in. If it's a good human environment, you can work with a really tough population like, like, uh, like drug addicts. And sometimes they, they get better. But if you don't manage it humanely, what happens is quite often the counselors get sick because the work is just so hard. I saw that in drug programs and I saw that in jails. And so I got interested in management and first of all, how you manage drug programs and then how you manage anything. And I, I decided that uh, graduate work in religion was fun, but not as practical and not as change the world as I wanted to be. So I ended up going into management, management training. And I led a, the European branch of a U.S. management company, helping managers figure out how to run things more humanely. In other words, how to facilitate. That word was brand new back then. No, what's, what's that mean? Well, it means you're not the boss. It means you're not the leader. It's not you're trying to push things at people. You're trying to create an environment where people contribute and contribute their full humanity because it's safe to do that. So I got really interested in that. And uh, one thing led to another and joined Ernst & Young 
as a partner, moved back from Europe as a partner in Ernst & Young because I was the big change leadership guy. I could sell multi-million dollar projects to things like FedEx and uh, British Airways and Lufthansa and Volkswagen and Philips and blah, blah, blah. And my facilitation experience took a real jump there. So I'm the new partner. That's a good deal financially and in every other way. I didn't love what I was doing, where I was doing it, but I got invited to this thing called a design shop run by Matt and Gail Taylor. Matt Taylor is, uh, is still around and is still a good friend. We speak regularly and work together regularly. Matt is an architect designer who, as a young man, was a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. He met his wife, Gail, who was a brilliant educator who could take throwaway kids. The kids, are, now you got to write these kids off. They're no good. They're, they're not going to make it. And she would prove they could excel. They could exceed the so-called high performers if they're in the right environment. Okay, so I get invited to this thing called a design shop, and I come prepared to hate it. What I was told was it's three intense days, 12-hour days. You don't get any break. Matt's kind of a guru, and you just just go for it. Go. Will you, will you do this thing? So I'm a good troop. I'll go, yeah, I'll do that. Going prepared to hate it. I walked in the room. It was like Dorothy opening the door to Oz. All of a sudden, things were in color. What does that mean? Well, it means I was one of the best, in my own mind, I was one of the best facilitators around. Give me a flip chart, some overheads, back in the day of overheads, and a group, and I could do anything. But I walked into this environment with acres of rolling whiteboards, plants, music, hundreds of books, artists capturing ideas on whiteboards back when nobody was doing that. And I went, whoa, what is going on here? And before it was done, I had an encounter with Matt where he, he remembers it this way. He said, do you remember when you came up to me and asked me, do you really know what you're doing here? And I said, yeah, I think I do. And I said, well, yeah, I think you do too. And you're the only one I've ever met who understands things about group energy that I believe I understand, except I've been painting things in black and white. I've been using charcoal. You've got a full palette of colors here to work with to change group energy. And I would like to be a part of this. So it turned out Ernst & Young was thinking of bringing this process into the, the firm, you know, an accounting firm, really? This, this wild environment of, of art and creativity and real discipline and getting stuff done and mobilizing people. I said, well, I want to be a part of this. I called my then wife that night and warned her I was about to sell the cow for magic beans. She said, what does that mean? She said, look, I, I've just spent three days here and I'm different. This is an amazing experience. And Ernst & Young thinks they may want to do this. And if they do, I want to be in on it. Now, the odds that it will succeed within Ernst & Young, maybe not so great. That's the selling the cow for magic beans part. But on the other hand, this looks like so much fun. And I would learn so much that I'm going to do it. So I did. And I built a global service uh, for Cap Gemini. I really kind of took Matt and Gail to Hollywood here. We had 28, 10,000 foot centers around the world. 
And we sold our consulting operation to a French company, Cab Gemini, and people kind of dispersed. There was a diaspora of people out of the ASC into other organizations. And now most of the main large consulting companies, uh, Cap Gemini, E&Y, had to be out of the business for a while. They got back in the business. PwC, Deloitte, everybody has some version of this, and they often draw on the M.G. Taylor methodology that I did my best to capture in the collaboration code. Big ones and hundreds of small operations apply this method to helping groups come up with solutions that nobody may have in their head when they walk in the room. Sorry, Douglas, that was a long story, but that's where I come from, and that's why I care about this stuff. I care about it because it works, it's fun, and it's it 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 meets the criteria for being a fully humane environment, like the one I was looking for back then when my friend Doug ended up in a coma. Like we got it, somebody's got to do this better than we did then, and I I've, I've been looking for ways ever since on how to do that. And I think I've, I may not have the full answer, but I got big chunks of the answer. You know, it's not uncommon to hear these early formative moments, you know, these threads that persist throughout someone's career, especially facilitators. And, you know, I picked up on that early in your story, this kind of connection to humans, you know, early on, there was a focus on the study of faith. And, you know, no one does prison work unless they're really interested in a human experience, right? And then, of course, drug detox and then experiencing that with your colleague. I mean, these are some very formative things that kind of thrust you into the affinity of this work, it seems like. Absolutely. You know, I was I was setting out to be a diplomat, and then I just found that that was just so much bullpucky. It was people playing political games as if humans were pieces on a chessboard. And I went, you know what? They can't be that way. It can't be that way. Mm. It's got to be a different way. And uh, and then in divinity school, I realized that that's important. But for so many people, it, even when people went to church, that was an hour of their week. But what happens at work, 40, 50, 60 more hours of their week is much more determinative of who they show up as, as human beings, that if, if you want to make the world a better place for humans, where are you going to work? Except in work. Wow. Yeah. I want to also make sure to underscore for our listeners, you know, the Matt and Gail you're talking about are the creators of the MG Taylor framework, which I bet a lot of facilitators listening know, but quite a few probably never heard of. And that's the content of the collaboration code series that you wrote. In fact, I think you said Matt co-wrote this stuff with you. Yeah, he wrote, uh, well, a lot of it's based on his, his work and working with him for well, let's see. It's 27 years now and working very closely. And working sometimes means like this and sometimes means like this. So it's not as if it's all been uh, singing different parts of the same song. We've really butted heads a ton. And I, I love them both. I love them both dearly. And they've contributed so much to how we understand human behavior in groups. And what's necessary to design things that don't exist today and then move to actual action. It's it's not just design like, well, let's come up with a better pencil. Well, yeah, yeah that's important. But 
let's come up with a better way to do this or do that important thing. And all I've been able to do has been uh, augment at times, a challenge at other times, uh, document in a way that we can put books out there, put courses out there. And, and my aim is to train the next generation so that they don't have to make up all this stuff we would make up in the middle of the night in a design shop going, what are we going to do tomorrow with these people? Uh, and it would, uh, we would tell our, our knowledge worker teams, you can sleep next week. We have work to do here. So we have to commit ourselves fully to getting our clients to whatever promised land they came here to get. And they don't know how to do that. We have a process. We don't know what the answer is, but we know how to help them come up with an answer they can commit to and act on. And that's what Matt and Gail are just geniuses at. So I was writing this stuff down uh, over years. We, we all learned to take good notes, to keep documentation. If it ain't documented, it ain't science, says Arthur C. Clarke, or maybe Heinlein, one of the great science fiction guys. If it ain't documented, it ain't science. So document your work so you can go back and learn from it. And that's what I drew from to write these books. And that's what, particularly Matt, who's a great journalist, you should see his journals. They look like Da Vinci's journals. They're amazing. Oh, wow. um, he's documented a lifetime of work. And what I really hope to do in the rest of our lives, mine and his, is help uh, capture and put in a form that other people can see that documentation so that people don't have to make that up again. Let's make up new stuff based on that. Mm. Let's stand on those books and reach higher. That's the point. Amazing. So for folks that maybe have you know dabbled in MG Taylor or haven't even heard of it before, how would you define some of the key tenets of like what makes it so powerful? Well, Matt, Matt was and is an architect and would design these collaboration environments. Winston Churchill said something like, uh, we create our buildings and then our buildings create us. So we are deeply influenced by our environment. This species didn't evolve except by paying very careful attention to what's going on around us because we're not that fast. We don't have good teeth. We had to be pretty attentive to our environment to even survive. Well, we're still those creatures. We're still very attentive to even subtle cues in our environment. Environments tell us how to behave. Others in the environment reinforce the messages given by the physical space. Okay, uh, what are the kind of environments that invite us to be curious and take some risks because it might be okay here to try some things out, to reveal who we are to other people in that environment, even though we're going to have to see them back at work on Monday. How do we make that okay? And okay enough that we strengthen the ties of an organization on their relationships and in what they can do together. So the, the most salient piece of an environment, and when you walk in an M.G. Taylor environment, and many of them have now been influenced by that. I, IDEO uh, in Palo Alto learned a lot from the space Matt created in Palo Alto. And so this idea that environments aren't about cubicles 
and stupid little meeting rooms where everybody sits around a table and there's that one whiteboard or the monitor down at the end. And, oh, come on, just shoot me. Uh, the way we work together is influenced by the place where we work. Okay, so that's the first piece. Second piece is there's a process that involves both creativity and discipline. So it's a bit of a paradox. You know, you think about wild creative, boom, brainstorm, cool. All right, great. And then how do we winnow down what we brainstormed to what we can actually commit to do? So there are models that describe any creative process, models Matt and Gail developed, that describe how you need to understand how the system you're in is creating the thing you want to change. Okay. And when you understand that, then you can have an idea of what could be different. Okay. And then you share that so other people may have a similar idea and you still don't have the solution. And if you jump to solution right there, it's what you already know. There's a period of building insight that involves ambiguity and not knowing and frustration and all these things that a normal meeting would try to avoid. That's an important part of this process because without that, you don't break through in your own head or in your work with other people to something that's possibly useful and still new. And so this idea of a creative process that involves frustration and being bored and sometimes conflict and all of that, that takes time. And that's the other piece of this. Can't do it in a three-hour meeting. Can't do it in a two-hour Zoom call. Can't do it in an, an artificially abbreviated space of time. Some stuff just takes time. Some stuff has to stretch out over time. One of our, one of our rules was sleep on it twice. What does that mean? It means if you want to get people to commit to doing something that they didn't have in their head when they started this process, if they don't sleep on it at least twice, they don't trust it. It hasn't been worked by their subconscious mind, their unconscious mind working out the, I don't think so. Well, maybe. Well, what about this? Without that engagement in the full consciousness, like when we sleep, like when we take a shower, like when we take a run or a hike, th that alteration between periods of intense work and periods of something else is necessary to both come up with a new solution and come up with one that people can go, you know what? I would have thought that was crazy two days ago, but I think that's what we got. I think that's our solution. Now, how do we do that? How would we test that? because we're not smart enough to get everything right here. How do we build a test so that when we go out in the world, we can further the design word is iterate. We can take it again and again and again and make it better. So what's unique about Matt and Gail? That's a long-winded answer to a very clear, simple question. Sorry about that. It's, it's the environment. It's the process of design with a real understanding, deep understanding of how people work together to design, commit to, and implement new things. It may be unique, and it's not as if it's closed. So it's not the M.G. Taylor people have a way of doing things. <laughs> well, they, they do because they've experimented with what works, but it's an open system, not a closed system.
So you've got a better idea. Make me an offer. Mm. What can we do? How do you see it? Let's try that. Let's learn from that. Let's get feedback. Cool. All right. On the basis of that feedback, now what do we do? That's the process. Yeah. You know, the commitment piece, I think, is really critical. And where I see a lot of people that try to do these things, whether even if they're trying to pull the MG Taylor methods off the shelf or design thinking or whatever it is, if we don't have that follow through with the commitment, it's really difficult to actually see change manifest. And we believe that commitment has to happen through practice, through ongoing integration into the work. And I'm kind of curious, like, and it kind of points back to your thing about, you know, sleeping on it twice, taking the time with it so it's emergent. We're not just going to try to make it just happen and say, okay, we're going to commit to this. Yeah, check a box. Okay, we're good. Oh, absolutely. And, and how often do, do we uh, we accept that in a large group setting? You go, uh, hi, everybody with us? Okay, we're going to do a vote. We're going to do an up-down vote. We don't vote. We, we, this is what we call decision by design. What does that mean? It means you avoid a vote. And losers. It means if someone would vote against it, try to understand what they're voting against. And it, to the extent you can, build those interests into the solution that then you ask people to commit to. I've been just lucky enough to not only work with Matt and Gail, but work with another fellow who was the co-author of Getting to Yes, a fellow named William Urey where we got the idea of getting to yes and win-win and all of that. And I work with William on high stakes, usually below the radar efforts to work for peace around the world. And when there's a war, there's a winner and the loser, but the losers generally don't go away. Mm. And so to what extent can we construct a peace that's acceptable to everyone by building enough of what people not just say they want, but what they, they're really moved by into that solution. That's win-win. That's win-win. And so to take that stuff really seriously takes a lot of creativity and a lot of imagination and a lot of getting it wrong and being in conversation with the people who, when you get it wrong, you roll over their feet and they go, ow! And they say, that's not, you're not done yet. Look what you just did here. So the other piece to the M.G. Taylor approach is large-scale collaboration of all the stakeholders, not just the ones without power that we can pretend don't matter. Mm. You know, it, it's making me think about just some of the pillars or beliefs in kind of negotiation, right? We don't want to just say, is it A or B? Right. You know, we don't want to just meet in the middle. What is some integrated approach when we take all the concerns in mind and think about what is some net new thing we can create that might make everyone happy, even if it's the most paradoxical thing you could imagine. Like there, there could be a solution there. And if there's a solution, it's probably there, right? Yeah. It's, it's probably something that looks like a paradox, but might be one of those dynamic tensions between being global and local. Well, which is it? <laughs> what do you mean? We know that you can't be local without having global impact anymore, nor can you just think globally and ignore what's happening on the ground where various people. So which is it? Global or local? Well, it's yes. And so how do we work a way to, to take that into account? You know, and I think it's interesting to maybe stitch into that a little bit because in the pre-show chat, you were talking about 
your work around just going big and the importance of the kind of moment we are in right now. Well, you know, I just got done doing a, a session with the guy who wrote this book, 10 Years to Midnight, Blair Shepard. It's a great book. Not that I'm flogging books, but... Uh, and I know that these are evergreen re recordings, but I think I can say with some confidence that uh, 10 years to midnight, and he wrote it two years ago. So we're on the clock. What, what, what does that mean? He's not the only really big brain, deep thinker who's saying this could be one of the most critical decades in human history. Why? Because there are systemic processes running out of control. And if they keep running out of control and we keep pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and we don't listen to, 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 to this guy, uh, Paul Hawken, I'm looking at the book Regeneration, we have a chance of not just dying more slowly, we have a chance of regenerating the planet, but we better get going or the planet we start to regenerate will be in much worse shape than the one is today. So... I don't think we have a choice but to go big. We've we've mm. we've already gone big, and that's how we ended up. We've gone big unconsciously, and we've ended up by putting stuff into the atmosphere and imagining that there is some place called away, where you can throw things away. Where exactly would that be? Where exactly on a planet that's a spaceship hurtling through space, and it's the only one that's got life that we know of so far? Where do you put things away such that you don't have to deal with them? So we've already gone big. We're already operating on a planetary scale. They call this the Anthropocene. What does that mean? Well, it means human activity is now changing the very climate and the conditions for life on Earth. So we've gone big. We just need to take responsibility for being big in a way that allows subsequent generations of all species to have a planet worth possible to live on. So, I mean, I don't want to be apocalyptic, but goodness, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to think too far, too long to go. If we don't go big now, it's going to be that much harder down the road. So let's get started. And luckily we have gotten started when, when uh, Paul Hawkins writes his books about uh, sustainability, about regeneration. All he does is describe things that are already happening that we need to start doing at scale. So this great turning toward a more global approach, toward a, toward a more sustainable civilization, has already begun to happen. It just needs a little more help and a little more scale and a lot more creativity and a lot more political will to get this done. So Part of my message when I'm teaching people how to do design shops is all that great corporate work we've been doing for decades, that was practice. Now, you have a chance to get in the real game. It's, it's like being in the minor leagues is, is working it out to be in the major leagues. Well, the major leagues is helping society, civilization, including business, probably starting with business more so than government. Uh, or, or NGOs, uh, business people know how to get stuff done. And we, we, we live in the same planet. So how do we harness all of our resources and energies in the service of 
making this a world that works for everybody. It's simple to say. It's harder to do, but we don't have any choice but to do it. So that's that's Ricey going big. It's like, and your options are what? Where, where, what enclave would you retreat to that is exempt from what's going on? Mm-hmm. Doesn't exist. How's that showing up for you these days? In the pre-show chat, you were saying that uh, you really don't have to do this anymore, but you do it because you love it and you love this idea of impacting the future generations that are coming up. And I'm assuming there's like a kind of go big, uh, save the world aspect to that for you. So I'm just kind of curious how you're personally stepping into that. That's a great question. One of the ways I'm going big is teaching people how to do this stuff. So we don't have another 27 years, which it took for me to figure out how to do it well enough to write about it. So we don't have another 27 years. So how do we accelerate people learning how to work design collaboratively at scale? So if I can help people learn that, individuals, but also people in these large consulting companies that have adopted our methods, I'm all in on that. My wife, Carolyn, has just written a book called Epic. Her life has been working with women and empowerment, as well as being a global leader for a, a practice in of the pharma practice of, of Ernst & Young. She's amazing. And uh, we work together where we can on diversity and inclusion in large corporations to help all the voices of all the people more representative of the planet than old white guys, you know, pardon the expression, a technical term we use in the diversity business to help large organizations be a place where all the voices get listened to and taken into account. So that we do that work. We work with William Urey on conflict and then teaching people a collaborative approach to solving conflicts, getting to yes. And his next book will be called Getting to the Impossible Yes. Doing the things that everybody knows we can't do, but we got to do anyway. There was a time when any resolution to apartheid was seen as completely impossible. The fact that the East and the West were pointing missiles at each other, we still are, by the way, but it got very active and very dangerous and maybe getting dangerous again, the resolution of the Cold War was completely impossible. Bringing down a wall in in Germany and in Eastern Europe, impossible. That's not going to happen. All of those things happened. And there are so many impossible things that we must find a way to make happen. It just takes the commitment to do it. People need to wake up every day going, you know what? Uh, I'm going to do something today to make that future a little more possible than it was yesterday. And that's all it takes. Another thing about the M.G. Taylor approach is to really take the future seriously. There's a saying there, you can't get there from here, but you can get here from there. What does that mean? Well, it's hard to imagine what we need to do to get to the kind of future we want. What's easier to imagine from a psychological point of view is to step into that future, describe it, and then ask, What of this future could I do more of tomorrow? And bring that there to here. That unleashes creativity. It gets us unstuck. 
and gives us something to work toward. So there's just some of the ways we're going big. And a lot of people are going big. That's what's cool. It's not, not just us. Humanity has kind of an immune response, Douglas. It's like when, when we get sick and we get a fever. Well, that's good. That's our body trying to cook whatever is in us out of us. That's a, that's a healthy immune response. There's an immune response that humanity has to the situation we're in, and it's called organizing, getting people together in large and small ways to make a difference. And it's happening countless ways, millions and millions of ways, millions and millions of new groups around the planet organizing to make something local a little better or something global a little better that has local ramifications. And all the local things have global ramifications. And we don't even even know what they all are, but we need to get in the game, need to do our bit. You know, I love that idea of making it a little more possible. William Urey calls himself a possibilist. And the scientists have a, a, a phrase in evolution called the adjacent possible. Mm-hmm. What has become possible now that might not have been possible X ago? A year ago. I mean, th- what's possible now after a pandemic is it's a piece of cake for us to have this conversation, uh, to record it, to put it out to people. We've become much more adept at using these technologies for some things that they're good at. We've tried to apply them to some things they're not so good at, but okay, that's fine. We'll learn that. We've we've knit together the planet in a way that it's never been together. This pandemic was a global experience. Name another time in the history of humanity when humanity has been self-consciously going through the same thing altogether. The same thing. And everybody knew we're going through this together with those people on the other side of the planet and the other side of the tracks. We're all in this. Now we've had various not so helpful ways of responding to that, but the reality of it was inescapable. Mm-hmm. So this just as the idea of it, the ecology. That, that's, a, that's a relatively new concept that the planet has a system that has its own rules. Let's learn what those rules are and then try not to violate them all the time. So this, this sense of a global civilization that some have had always, but not everybody, it's, it's harder to run from uh, and we just need to help people understand there are ways of responding to it. Even if it's just something in your own neighborhood, something in your own yard, you can do better. Uh, and then things we need to do better together, politically, socially, economically, we need to get, you know, find a way to do that. Incredible. I want to make sure to leave time for you to offer our listeners a final thought. <laughs> Oh, I've inflicted a lot of thoughts on our listeners, Douglas. <laughs> but if I had to do anything, and if they have time for one more, what would it be? I think that my final thought would be connect. Mm. Connect with people. Connect. You're not in this. No, Nobody's in this alone. You didn't start out in this alone. You're not going to end up, really. We all might die alone. That's possible. I don't know what happens inside the head when you die. I don't know. But I know the fundamental reality of human life is connection. And the pandemic has disconnected so many people from so many relationships and systems. It was hard. It was hard on relationships, really hard on relationships, hard on relationships at work. 
killer on many domestic relationships, relationships between parents and kids. Wow. So connect, reconnect, and know that that's the, the, the bedrock truth of being a human being is we're human beings together. And we've always been stronger together. That that was that was always the gift that that this species had was our ability to communicate, our ability to work together, to use our hands to work together, our ability to recognize in to see the sadness in another person's eyes and the joy and connect it to our own. That's that's been the essence of being a human being. So let's let's get back to that and let's get together. And Turn your heart, put your heart to work in your hands and do something. Just do something. Get in motion. Get in motion. It can be almost anything, but don't just sit and watch because we're not fundamentally observers. We have very good observer functions, but fundamentally we're on the planet to do things together and we have a chance to help make the planet a garden for us and for all other species. About time we got started. Amazing. How can folks find out more about the design shop training and the collaboration code series? Like, where can they find out more on that and maybe join in on some of that? Sure. Collaborationcode.com has links to the books. And we've we've done so much training recently inside large organizations. We've kind of put the public training uh, off to the side, and maybe it's time to pick that back up again. So no promises there, but it's quite likely that my wife, Carolyn Buckloose, and I uh, will be initiating that again. But you know what? You know enough now to get into action. You don't need to wait to get trained. A lot of what we learned, we learned by doing. It's a very practical method. Just learn by doing, pay attention to what happens when you do that, and then do whatever you did then better the next time and learn from that. The essence of design is feedback. It's, you know, put a prototype out there. You put an idea out there, not because you think it's right, even though your ego may be all tied up in it, the way mine is a lot, but or anybody's is a lot. Recognize it's not done until it's been tested, vetted, until you're with other people, giving each other good feedback, being tough on the ideas, not tough on each other, but tough on the ideas. So the ideas we commit to work together are the best we got. Now, that's a natural process, but but get involved. Get involved somehow. Get in motion somehow. Work on something, because even that will help you become a better human being. That's how we got here. That's how we got here. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rob. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today, and thanks again for joining. Douglas, I'm just so grateful to have the opportunity to talk about this, and I really I really appreciate what you're doing to help people's understanding of when we get together, how do we do that even better? I love that. Well done. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. If you want to know more, head over to our blog where I post weekly articles and resources about radical inclusion, team health, and working better. VoltageControl.com.